years ago, that Generation Jesus move of God, I was looking through my notes and there was a, a page I had. And it's something God told me and it's sort of right before revival started breaking out in a major way. And God said, I want my people to let me in. I want my people to let me fully enter into their lives. For too long, I've been their part-time God, relegated to Sundays, to church, to prayer time. I want to be intimately involved in all areas of their lives. It is time for my people to let me in. And then I wrote, when we do that, we can say, I abide in him, he abides in me, we are one. I abide in him, he abides in me, we are one. See, that's the point. That is the point of Christianity. And so I have written here, what do we want, a move of God or a move of man? A move of God or a move of man, and sometimes one precedes the other. And Moses went up on the mountain because God beckoned him. Because everything that ends in Jesus begins in Jesus. Everything that ends in God begins in God. There, we, we can't do anything without him. And so God summoned Moses, but Moses responded. And so up on the mountain, he began to be transformed. And that was a move of God. But it didn't have all the bells and whistles, and the people below got antsy and, and impatient. And so they, they wanted something to happen. They wanted to see something. And God was going to have some things for them to see. But first, he wanted to do something in them. And so Aaron did his whole thing. We won't go into that with the golden calf. And, you know, it looked all fancy, but it just wasn't God. You know, one time the pastor said, you know, my job is to keep the people happy. Well, that's what Aaron did. And so my job is to speak what God says and for God to work however he wants to work. And so sometimes we are waiting for God to move and he will. And there are times when he just comes upon us and we do nothing to really cooperate. But then there are other times when just like Alan said this morning, it's our move. It's our move. In the tabernacle in the wilderness, there were three areas. The place where God dwelt, where his glory was, was the Holy of Holies. Alan mentioned it this morning. Alan mentioned the veil. I thought they're going to just preach this whole thing. But the veil that Alan referred to was separated. It was a, it was a, it was a thick veil, and it separated the, the priest who served daily in the temple from that place that we call the Holy of Holies. And even the high priest could only enter through that veil once a year. Access through the veil was forbidden by penalty of death, unless it was time that God wanted you in. And so the priests wore bells around the, the, the bottom of his garment, bells and pomegranates, so you could hear them still ringing inside, so you know he was okay. The sacrifice was accepted. He didn't die in the presence of the holy God. In the temple, they had a chute with water that would come down, so it was a signal, I'm still alive. I'm in the presence of God and I lived. And year after year, this was repeated, and only until Jesus was, were we able to say it's finished. But at the moment of Jesus' death by crucifixion, the veil, four and a half inches thick, so finely woven that two teams of oxen pulling in different directions couldn't rip it apart, it was split in two, but not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. And so Jesus not only entered into God's presence with his blood, but he opened a way through the torn veil of his flesh for us to enter. Ephesians 2.18, through him we have access 
to the Father. And so the keep out sign that had been there for years and years and years became come in. Keep out became come in. But since that day, Satan has waged all-out war, devising ways to cause you to say to God, keep out, don't come in. See, first you couldn't get near to him. But now that's settled. And now he's wanting to get near to you. Psalms 24, 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, commentators say that this portion of the psalm is referring to the bringing in of the ark where the, that symbolizes the presence of God into the tent of worship, the tabernacle in Jerusalem that David built, or even into the temple that Solomon built. And others say it pictures Christ ascending into heaven. Because of his blood, he could legally say, open up, lift up your heads, O ye gates, I'm coming in. But with you and me, we are created with free will. He can enter heaven by command. Because of him, you can enter heaven. But without your cooperation, I want you to realize that sometimes heaven can't enter you. In certain areas, at certain times, in certain ways. Doors and gates. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Open up you everlasting doors. Some of these doors and gates are old. They've been there a long time. And there are things that precede a thing. And I just detect that God is doing things on the inside of many of us. And it precedes a thing. Because he's preparing us for what is to come. So that he's taking out of us some old things that don't belong there. So that when he does a new thing, we'll be fully able to participate and receive in every way that he wants us to. Doors and gates are entrances. They're the means or the place or the point of entry. They keep things out. They keep things from getting in. In the natural, we construct doors and gates for protection, for preservation. There's nothing wrong with that. But then we can carry it over into the spiritual and the emotional and the soulless realm. My son was at my house one day, and I go, how'd you get in? I go, I go the gate was locked, and... This was, he goes, I just jumped the fence, Mom. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, you keep the front door open, even though it's behind that gate. He goes, I got right in. And so sometimes we think we've erected these great places of safety, and they're really a false sense of safety. And there's times in our life when we erect doors and gates and barriers because we really felt we needed to be safe, but it's not even what God wanted. It, it's, it's a false thing. It, it, it's It's flimsy. And God is saying, lift up the gates, open the doors, let me come in. Now, we say it in a service. God, come into our service. But can we say, God, come into me? Come into me. He requests entrance. 
but only you can let him in. Who is he? Who is the king of glory? He's the Lord. He's strong. He's mighty. He can fight your battles. See, some of us feel like if we let down the gate or the wall, how are we going to handle our battles? If he comes in, he fights the battles. Webster's defines glory as splendor, magnificence. It's translated in the Bible from the Hebrew word kabod, meaning the full weight, the weightiness, all the attributes of God, because you get that when you get his glory. All that he is, is is in his glory. It's talking about all that God is. And so his being, his nature, his presence, it can all be manifested in your life. The king of glory wants to come in. Are we really going to have the audacity to say no? But we do it constantly. And we have sterilized and homogenized our gospel We wanted to make it acceptable to people, and we want it to be pleasing to people, and we want it to sometimes sound sophisticated. And and so we have made conversion to Christ in this country sometimes a matter of mechanics and semantics. And so we say, if you do this, and if you say that, you're saved. Now, I am not against the sinner's prayer. We lead people in that prayer. I prayed that prayer to be saved, and my life was transformed in the summer of 1976. But we tell people this word and we go, you need to accept the Lord, accept him. This term really can't be found in the Bible. It doesn't mean you can't ever use it again. I'll probably use it again myself. But we encourage people to do this thing, to accept Christ, but often there's no accompanying love for him. The person is pronounced saved, you're saved, and they move on and there's no relationship. And there's no love and there's no intimacy, but they said the words. And then there's no hunger for God and there's no thirst for him. And he says that he fills those who hunger and thirst and they're just left there. They said the words. And there's no becoming one with him. And see, that's the whole point. And we miss it and we've cheated people by teaching them to be content and to settle for little. And worse yet, sometimes we become content and we settle for little. God is a person. The middle of the passage says, who is this king of glory? Who is he? Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Reveal yourself to me. You know how John says theology is the study of God and God was never meant to be studied? It was meant to be known. See, meditate on that. We need a relationship with God whereby we go beyond accepting to receiving. Are you going to receive visitors today? That was an old-time phrase. Ladies used to say it in their parlors. Are you going to be receiving anyone? See, are you going to be bringing anyone in that you're going to focus on and entertain and have communication with? We need to go beyond accepting to receiving. Very different transaction. We need to let him have entrance into the deepest, most innermost parts of our hearts. And this will result in oneness with him. And then our whole being will come under the influence of his person. So we might start out weak, but we'll end up strong. We might start out fearful, but we'll end up courageous. And we might start out sick, but we will end up well. Revelation 3.21, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
opens the door, I will come in. I will come in. If we open the doors and the gates, and there's always, don't fool yourself, there's always more than one door. There's always more than one gate. The Bible talks about the rooms of the belly, more than one room. And so you could have an open door here, but a closed one there. And an open gate and a wide open place here, but be very non-transparent and protective and hiding somewhere else. So we might feel we're strong in one area, but we don't want to look at that weak place. And we might feel, I'm so transparent about this, but we're undercover somewhere else. And we have such order in one area of our life, but something else is just very chaotic. And so we need to talk about how do these doors and gates, and even sometimes walls, get built in our lives that we think are keeping us protected but instead they're keeping God out. And I do, you know, I love alliteration. You know that about me. And so I've got seven words that begin with P and one is preoccupation. You just get busy. <laughs> You're just preoccupied with outside forces, just life, not even bad things, just things. And so job and family and friends, renovating your house, uh, a promotion, a project, uh, they just get you so distracted that you're not really listening for what God says. And even if he says something, you just feel like, okay, okay, I, I'll, I'll hear that later because I got this going on and I got that going on. Even parenting. You know, par Christian parents, you want to be such great parents. If you're not careful, your life so revolves around your kids, you don't even have time to look to God. And in the busyness, a callousness forms and a, a hardness forms and less sensitivity is there and less hearing and, and, and then you're listening less to him and then pretty soon you're not even where he wants you to be anymore. And you wonder, where, where did that go? What happened? Two, preconceptions and prejudices. Years ago, not now, not anybody in here, not, of course not you, there was a women preachers and speakers were, were more rare. And a lot of men, they just couldn't receive from women preachers and speakers. And so in the early days of our church, one time Easy asked me to preach on a Sunday instead of just on a Wednesday night. Because somehow Wednesday night seemed okay, but Sunday seemed like a big deal. And I go, you think the men are going to be okay? <laughs> and so I preached my message and one hockey, one former hockey coach and one other executive businessman that came in and go, we don't really like listening to women preachers, but we really love that sermon. So I passed the platter test because, see, all of us have a platter test that we don't think we do. The platter that God's going to serve something on, we judge the platter. And maybe he's got this scrumptious meal for us, but if the platter doesn't look right, we may or may not receive it. And I'll just tell on easy because he's not up here enough to tell on himself. You know, in the 80s, ladies, if, if you're old enough, you know, there, were this, there was this season we went through. There were some seasons with some really ugly fashions. And, and there was this season where women had these slits, you know, on their dress, okay, a slit. Not real high. It didn't look lewd. It wasn't immodest, but it was just a slit. But they also had slips. We wore slips in those days. And slips had slits, but you had to buy a special slip with a slit, or else if you wore your regular slip with your slit dress, while you walked, your slip was, you got a, a big little triangle of your slip with every move. Easy hated that, okay? <laughs> there was a, a certain pastor's wife that, I mean, he could hardly hear the sermon when she preached because he was like, oh, that slip. 
Like it just, it just felt like her underwear was showing. Like it was just, it was very distracting. And so God could have been saying anything, but man, that slip was really hard to make it. It was hard to hear, hard to hear what she was saying. And so you can have a platter issue with too young, too old, a slit in the skirt with the wrong slip. It can be about a bad haircut, you know. Oh, my God, they think that's a haircut. It could be that somebody's up here with tattoos. You know, it, it can be anything. It can be in so many areas that we have these prejudices and these preconceptions. And, and God may use something or somebody or, or speak to you in a way that you least expected. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to give some helpful hints while I'm up here, while I'm doing this, to the platters. Anything that's too short, too tight, too weird, you become a distraction to your message. <laughs> and see, so you don't want to do that either. I told Paul when he was up here, Paul, you're young, so I get to use you as an example. I get to pick on you. And, and, and I go, look, I don't mind what you wear up there when you're leading worship. I go, you know, the worship, what did, what did Alicia say? The worship team can be edgy, but the, the preaching team needs to be Amish. Okay, but I mean, <laughs> not really. But, but I go, Paul, I don't care if you wear that earring with the chain and, and how many. I go, but when you preach, I go, wear the small earrings because I don't want people being distracted by the chain. I go, I go, you know, I've told Kirk, take your stuff out of your pocket. We're so busy wondering, what is in his pocket? Okay, like, <laughs> like his great teaching, like sometimes we can get thrown. See, don't be a distraction if you're a platter. You know, don't try to do that. What looks good on one platter doesn't look good on another platter. Well, she wore that. I go, well, she's a size two. <laughs> And, and so, and deodorant, let me go ahead and, while we're doing it, deodorant, a word from the Lord, deodorant. <laughs> we used to train leaders in Women's Aglow, and we'd go, are, are you wearing deodorant? Maybe you're getting so used to your aroma, but everybody else isn't. And so, and, and then perfume, too much, they're coughing, it's not the enemy coming out, it's your perfume. <laughs> Breath mints, one more we were at a meeting, and Alan goes, you know, sometimes, like, when he gets dressed, he, he raises his hands. Is he praising the Lord? No, he's making sure that his shirt's long enough so that if you raise your hands, you don't have a little blub of skin showing. Because we were at a meeting one night, and every time this man would just go, woo! And, I mean, you saw that, and he was one of the ministers. And I'm like, this is just not attractive, okay? Longer shirt, longer shirt. And so there's prejudices and preconceptions, but then we also have many learned biases. And these biases can keep us from receiving all that God has. What you think God will say, how you think God will do it, what you think God would never say to you sometimes is what he says to you. There was a time when Easy and I were having a little tension, and I was sure that he was going to come down hard on Easy, and instead he told me to forgive him. He didn't do anything really wrong. It was just irritating to me. And so sometimes God starts in the direction that you don't even think he'll start in. Sometimes there's agreements we've made about healing, about finances, about marriage, about our spouse. And sometimes we need to disagree with our agreements. Number three, pressures. I'll let you make your own list. Because you know the things that cause you pressure to make you shut a door to your soul or lock a gate because you can't deal with it. Pressures can be from others, husbands, wives, parents, children, bosses, people that love us. Pressure can be from circumstances, and pressure can come from demonic things. Number four, pride. You know the little saying, we can't, God can't abide where there is pride. But see, religious pride is the worst kind. And people in church think they don't have pride, and a lot of times they have religious pride. 
that know-it-all spirit. I've got it all together. I've been doing this a long time. I've known, you know, if you've known the Lord a long time, but some of these things have not been dealt with, that just means they're more firmly embedded in you. And sometimes it's harder to get out. Sometimes it's harder to get out because it's been there so long. It's so fortified. It is the very definition of a strong hold. And God says, I want to undo some things in your life. But you find it hard to say, oh, God, I am undone like the prophet. But see, sometimes undone is the best place to start fresh. Preferences. We have so many preferences. People want the church to be like Burger King, have it their way. I mean, they really do. And God talks about preferences. He talks about preferring one another. <laughs> In Romans 12.10, prefer one another. But we prefer a lot of other things. And so if I don't like this and I don't care for that, I can shut out things that God might want in. There was a friend of my sister who was a very, uh, in another city, who was the wife of a very successful, well-known businessman. And she was sophisticated, a lovely lady. And she'd go to meetings and she'd see women sort of what she considered acting out emotionally. And it was very irritating to her. She goes, what is wrong with these women? They have to flail about and, you know, just can't just stay in their seat and... Uh, and then one time somebody waved their arm and it felt like it was going to hit her and uh, she let it be known how irritated she was by it. And so they went to a Joyce Meyer conference and Joyce Meyer's conferences are not known for their great manifestations. And somehow the spirit of the Lord came upon her at this Joyce Meyer conference and she started flailing about and they were having to move chairs out of the way. And she did it for 30 minutes. And after that, she never said another word. <laughs> Number six, procrastination. God, I really want you to work in me, just not now. It is not a convenient time. Can we just save it for later? God, we're going to go there. Let me get all this stuff done, and then we'll do it. So we can put God on a shelf and think there's no expiration time, but sometimes the expiration date may pass, and the circumstances won't be right. And in the meantime, we've let things get more embedded in us, and it's just harder. Number seven, pain. The big one. Pain from past experiences is a perfect breeding ground to cause people to put up walls, to shut doors, and to lock gates. Hurt and unforgiveness can become a wall, a door, or a gate. Fear can become a wall, a door, or a gate. Trauma can cause us to subconsciously put up walls and doors and gates. But God picked the lock on my gate. He broke down my wall. And he used his master key to get in my door. But I asked him to. I asked him to. I begged him to. I said, if there's anything in me that's not like you, God, go there and get it out. If there's any hidden thing in me, please expose it. I don't want the anointing to flow through me and any of me be left there. And I prayed it for months and even years. But he answered my prayer. And while there might be seven ways that we can erect doors or walls or gates, if we want him to and if we invite him in, God has one way, one P word that we can utilize to help break down a wall, use a key to a door, Unlock a gate right now. It's a word you may not hear, and we don't, you know, there are things that we know and words that we know the definition to, but we've never really 
experience them in our life. Theologians know a lot of stuff, they, but they may have never even had a face-to-face encounter with God. And so we're going to learn a word today, but really it's not about the word. And it has a lot to do with even the, the word that Carol had, and it's prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. There's three kinds of grace, theologians say. One is justifying grace. That's the one by which our sins are forgiven. One is sanctifying grace. It allows us to grow in the image of Christ. But prevenient grace is God's work in our lives before we even sense he's at work. Prevenient. It's like a prepaid visa card. (laughs) It's there, paid in full, before we even need to spend it. And basically it means because he has we can. And if we let him, then he does even more. Jesus said, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. I believe that God is drawing us into a place of asking him to get everything out of us that's not like him. Lately, we've been meeting just for prayer and deliverance happens. We just meet to pray about something, and God reveals something on the inside of one of us that needs to be dealt with. We're like, wait, where did this come from? It's prevenient grace. Before we even knew we needed it, Jesus was going there. And so he's already said, lift up the gates. Open the doors, everlasting doors. However long they've been there. But because he has done some things, we can respond to him. So he's saying it's our move. It's our move so he can move. It's our move so he can move. So I guess really what I'm asking you today is can we just be real with God? Can we just get down to the nitty-gritty, take stock? Maybe even, you know, I say I'm ruthless with the truth. Ruthless sounds mean, but the truth sets you free. (laughs) So I like to be ruthless with the truth. And I'm ruthless on myself first. See, and sometimes we've been hurt, and we've had so much pain, and people have been mean to us. And so even the word ruthless, we, we can't, it's like, no, God only wants to love me and be kind to me. Sometimes the kindest thing is to tell me the truth so that we can deal with what's not good for me. So I have a question. Have you allowed some construction, doors, walls, gates, to go on in your life that's not constructive? And if so, I believe sometimes we don't even know it. But I believe prevenient grace starts to show us. And so God wants to tear down in order that he can build up. He wants to uproot in order that he can plant. See, whenever he even does a thing that sounds destructive, it's so that there can be something constructive. And there's a reversal. And so today, let's just invite God in in a new way. And you go, invite God in. You know, I I pray the sinner's prayer, you know, 35 years ago, 15 years ago, 22 years ago, three years ago. I mean, invite him into the inner rooms of your belly, into all the places, not just so that you can go to heaven, but so that heaven can enter you. So I'm asking you to pray a prayer that will move heaven. I know one day you're going to enter heaven. 
but we want to pray the prayer so that you can really say, thy will be done on earth in me, not just in the room, in me as it is in heaven. And I think, I don't know, Alan, did you say it? Something about, you know, when revival starts, that sometimes it has to start in us. I mean, that was, that was my whole thought with this message. God, bring revival. But he doesn't want revival all around us and then things still on the inside of us not right. See, that's not my God. He, he doesn't, oof. Some people live their whole lives in pretend, pretend Christianity, appearance Christianity, performance Christianity. Oh, it looks good, but they're not okay. Mm. And so, God, we want to be okay. We want to be one with you. We want to be transformed in any area where we're not, in any area where there's old stuff, God. Lord, we just pray today as a people, and we say, Lord, you have permission to put your finger on anything in me that is not like you. You have permission to put your finger on anything in me that is not like you. You have permission to uproot any plant that you have not planted because then if you haven't planted it, it's a weed. And it's destroying the beauty of the garden that you want me to live in. So, God, I'm just giving you permission to do a deeper work, God, than I have before. Lord, no matter how much you've done, I don't want anything left in me that is not of you, that is not best for me. I want real transformation on the inside. And I know we'll see things on the outside. But, Lord, the kingdom of heaven is peace and joy. And some of us, those are just catchwords, And we don't really have that operating in our life. And so if people watch this on a daily basis, they're, they're just going, what are all these words they talk about? But they sure don't exhibit that. And so, Father, I just want it to be real. I want your word to become flesh in me. Every person in this room, that's our prayer today. So, Lord, work in us. Work in us so that you can work more fully through us. Work in us so that you can work more fully through us. We give you permission. We give you permission. We want to receive you into every area of our life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You just prayed a dangerous prayer if you agreed with me on that prayer. But, oh, it'll be the best prayer you ever prayed. <laughs> the most productive time of my Christian walk was after I prayed that prayer. Because God produced things in me that only he could produce, that I couldn't produce without him. So Lord, I just thank you for everybody under the sound of my voice that producing time is on the way. Can you agree with me? Everybody said, amen. Amen.